Please open your Bibles to Judges chapter 4. We're going to study the first 16 verses of the fourth chapter this morning. Page 5 of your worship guide. I think almost everybody here knows this, but in case you don't, uh, that's where you'll find the sermon text, the title for today's sermon, the outline, and then some reflection questions. Please use that to stay engaged, doodle on that, take notes on that, because it's important that we uh, actively participate. This isn't just a period of time where I'm up here talking. It's, it's hopefully something that's communal. It's hopefully collaborative. Uh, you're participating in the conversation with God as we study this portion of his word. Uh, part of that interaction and that participation involves you standing as I read the word of God. So I'm going to invite you to do that now. And again, we're in Judges chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Uh, put your full attention on this as I read it for us. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for Sisera had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Verse 4, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali. And she said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river, river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Za'ananim, which is near Kedesh. Verse 12, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river of Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up! For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Y'all can have a seat. And I invite you to pray with me. Father, we desperately, always desperately require you to cultivate 
appetites in us for your word. We, we know what it feels like to desire stuff. We, we know what it feels like to feel hungry, uh, even voraciously hungry for entertainment, uh, certain, certain books and films and television shows, just storylines in some, some form. We, we, we go in for that in a big way, and you're telling us many, many stories. Um, and the thing about these stories you tell us is that they are alive, they are supernatural, uh, they, they can pierce our souls in a way that is dynamic um, and enduring. And so we pray that that's what we would experience, that that would in fact be what is happening right now as we study your word. And frankly, anytime we read your word, that that would be, uh, that would be the case. That's, that, that would be the impact on us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So uh, in 1941, uh, people in England realized that they were in a really uh, sort of desperate situation. It was the beginning uh, of World War II, and um, they, they thought, we really need to do something to bring some stability to our people. Uh, we, need, we need to provide something that will help them navigate this, this desperate moment and, and all of these hardships and all of these unknowns. And so they, they decided, okay, we're going to have this guy named C.S. Lewis um, give a series of talks on the radio. And uh, so he did this. He gave these series of talks on, I mean, how do you navigate real life? And his, his worldview, his approach was, well, you, you, you believe in, in God uh, and you cling to him. And specifically, you cling to the, the main story that God tells, which is the story of Jesus, right? The, the Christ. And, and he was trying to get at the essentials of what it looks like to be a Christian. What does it mean to follow, to follow Jesus? And uh, maybe some of y'all are aware, these, these radio broadcasts originally were produced and, and published as a book called Mere Christianity. M mere meaning, what, what are the basic, most essential things you need to know about following Jesus? Uh, and in these broadcasts, and ultimately in that book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, the offer of Christianity is simply this, that we personally enter and share in the life of Jesus. That we would personally embrace this offer means that we would love the Father as Jesus loves the Father. Jesus came into this world in order to spread the kind of life that he himself personally enjoys. In other words, Jesus is spreading a kind of good infection. Every Christian is to become a, a version of Christ, a little Christ. This is the whole purpose of becoming a Christian, that, that you would embrace the good infection of, of Jesus, that you would become like Jesus. And if you think of Christianity in this, this way of being a good infection, it, it boils down to this. Um, does this infection, this good infection, endure? Is it, is it lasting? It's the difference between a short-lived outward experience or influence and a long-term internal influence. Or you could say it's the difference between external pressure to conform for a time and kind of look like a Christian outwardly versus an internal zeal and an internal passion. And we see a, an example of this sort of external pressure to conform in, in this passage. It says this right away in this passage, verse 1, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after 
their, their previous judge, Ehud, died. So what this is telling us is that the people of Israel during the days of Ehud, they, they lived like the people of God. They, they were relatively faithful. Things were pretty, pretty good. They looked like Christians. But then Ehud dies and they relapse into sin. Now, it, it's good that the people of Israel would walk in the ways of, of God during the days of Ehud. That, that is good. I don't want to detract from that. Ehud's influence and his impact was, was good. It was positive. It was edifying. But if that lifestyle of living in the way of, of God only lasts as long as Ehud's lifespan, it's not sufficient. That, that's, that's okay, but it's not good enough. Uh, back before I, I started working with, with ECPC, I was a campus minister with RUF at Johnson Wales University. And I think some of you probably know that, that Johnson Wales, we call it JWU, JWU is a culinary institution. They offer other things to major in, but that's kind of what it's most well known for is culinary arts. And so from the year 2007 to the year 2013, I, I was really jazzed about cooking and, and culinary arts. And my wife, even, my wife and I even took some cooking classes on Saturdays. And you know, we bought some new knives and I, and I bought some, some books, both cookbooks and just kind of the whole idea of like farm to table and this whole movement of, of really getting into food and you know, being a foodie. And I watched some documentaries. There's this series on Netflix called Chef's Table. And I kind of geeked out about that for a season. And um, we bought some spices and some other cooking equipment. Um, but now if you talk to me and you ask me about my, my love and my zeal for the culinary arts, um, full disclosure, I mean, I eat at Wendy's. I, I still just go to what's easy. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. I mean, you should care about, about food and, and where it comes from and you're putting this in your body. It's a big deal and there's this whole artistic dimension, but it's just, it's just too hard to not go to the fast food joint because that's, that's easy. You know, it's, in America, it's easy to wear the label of Christianity. It's, it's easy to, to say, hey, I'm a Christian. I mean, you're, you're not going to get persecuted for that. It's, it's just an easy thing to say, I'm a Christian. Um, I like to call this being an REI Christian. You know, uh, REI is an outdoor store, and, and you, you see this all over. You know, we, we love to you know, buy the Patagonia vest, right, like the, the outdoor apparel. Um, but that's different than actually being outdoors, <laughs> You see, like we like to, to wear the, the outdoor stuff and maybe even buy some of the camping equipment and backpacking equipment and then we put it in our shed or in our basement and it just sits there. And, and, and we don't really use it. We don't take the risks of, of going on outdoor adventures and it's, it's, it's really uncomfortable. It's hard. I mean, it's, it's gritty and, and messy to actually use the equipment. And that's what it's like in America when it comes to following Jesus or saying, I'm a Christian. It's easy to sort of have the jersey, the Jesus jersey, uh, but that's very different than actually, you know, getting out there on the field and getting your hands dirty and, and taking the risks and feeling the discomforts. So during the days of Ehud, the people of Israel, they, I mean, they're buying the merchandise, they're watching the documentaries, they're subscribing to the magazines, and it looks like they're really into it. It looks like they're doing a good job, but we see here it's sort of superficial, it's short-lived. We, we know that because once Ehud dies, they again return to their, their evil. It, it didn't permanently capture them, right? But their zeal and their passion was short-lived. It didn't become their permanent passion and practice. And God says throughout his word, it has to be. 
It has to be your permanent passion to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This isn't an option. That's a command. And it's really for your own good. It's the only way for you to have an enjoyable, an endurably enjoyable life is to go full, fully into this relationship with God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so God says this has to be your permanent passion and practice. And so to jolt his people out of their superficiality, to jolt them out of their lethargy, God gives them over to the people of Canaan. He gives them over to Jabin, the king of Canaan and and Jabin's general, the commander of his army, Sisera. And we're told that Sisera, he's operating with 900 chariots of iron And he's a very oppressive guy. They they oppress Israel for 20 years. It even goes out of its way to tell you that this is a cruel version of oppression. The word oppression is pretty severe in and of itself. This says cruelly oppressed for two decades. So that's pretty intense. That's a big wake-up call. And yet, sadly, even with such a wake-up call, we can still all too easily entrench ourselves in being sort of lethargic. It, we, can, we can entrench ourselves in passivity, and we see a good picture of that, a robust picture of entrenched passivity in this passage. We see that in the character of Barak. Look what it says in verses 6 through 8. It says, there's this prophetess Deborah, and, and we're given the name of Deborah, Deborah's husband. His name is Lapidoth. So prophetess Deborah, wife of Lapidoth, calls Barak to gather 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun. And then it says in verse 8, Barak responds to Deborah by saying, okay, if you will go with me, if, you, if you'll hold my hand through this, then, then I'll go. But this is the key part. If you don't go with me, I will not go. If you don't go with me, Deborah, I will not go. And that is bad. That is a very uh, stark picture of entrenched passivity. This posture of I'll, I'll go if you go, but if you don't, I'm not. That, that's not what God's looking for. And, and frankly, we, we all know that this is not how life can work in any sustainable way. This does not even satisfy human standards. This does not satisfy our standards, let alone God's holy, perfect standards. Uh, so, for example, uh, we have a lot of teachers in this, in this room, a lot of teachers here at ECPC. Teachers, what if you overheard a conversation between two students, and one student is saying to the other, I'll obey the teacher if you obey. But if you don't obey, I'm not going to obey. You'd say, that's not good enough. I, I need you to obey. And even if there are those renegade students, you know, the ones that cause trouble and they don't, they don't stand in line the way they need to and they're always squirming and hitting other kids and stealing from other kids. You'd say, okay, those students, we budget for them, but, but I need my students to really invest in this whole system of obeying me. I can't, I can't have this, well, I'll do it if you do it, posture. Or, or what if you're in the hospital and you overhear a couple of doctors talking, he's like, well, I'll take care of my patients if you do. You'd be like, that's not good enough. <laughs> you, I think we still make doctors take oaths, right? Like, even if you have a, a doctor practicing in a bad way, like malpractice, I hope the majority of them are saying, no, it's, this is the oath we took. This is the career we signed on for, to, to really care for our patients in rigorous ways. Even if that means I'm, I'm on call and I have to be called away from, you know, 
being on the golf course or doing something that I enjoy to come and help my patients. That's the kind of buy-in we all demand. And God says, that's what I want. Wholehearted, personal commitment. And, and Barack is a picture of the opposite. He is not wholeheartedly, personally committed. He's, he's reliant on this sort of external pressure to conform. He, he needs someone else to kind of hold his hand, which, again, let me say, that's not the worst thing ever. It's great in one sense that Barack can be influenced towards something positive. It's great that he does participate, but it's not sufficient. And this is a really applicable, really important point for all of us because, you know, we in some ways, very rightly rely on other people to push us along and to sharpen us and to support us and encourage us. God has, in fact, set up the church as a body, so you do need support. But here's the thing. If at some point one of your you know, Christian mentors stops following Jesus, you still have to, right? Even if the prophetess Deborah stops following Yahweh, the, the, the right answer is that Barak would say, I'll do it even if you don't. What if the person who led you to the Lord, who's been pouring into you and supporting you and encouraging you, what if they apostatized? Kids, what if your parents, that they're your ride to church, what if they said, well, we're atheists now, we're not going to church anymore. Would you still say, well, I'm going to go with the neighbor then? Because Jesus is more important than you. Mom and dad, y'all are great, but Jesus is better. <laughs> I've got to have Jesus. I can't. I can't be primarily reliant on these external pressures. I have to be most sold out, most committed, most desperately dependent on Jesus. That's what I most need. And of course there will be a support system. That's how God has designed the body. But, but this is a very important point. Jesus makes this point in Luke 14. I would, I would encourage you later today to read Luke 14. And, and this is the story of, of God throwing a big party. And God is excited about his party, and he, he invites people, you know, people like us, people with, with full plates and busy lives. And it's time for them to come to the party, and so he sends his servants to go get them and bring them to the party. And, and one of them says, I've got a lot of business deals going on right now. i got some work-related things coming up. i got some travel in the, in the weeks ahead. Can we just postpone this? And then they go to another house, and, and these, these people are newlyweds. And they're like, ah, oh, well, we're just, you know, we're just kind of figuring out the whole newlywed thing, and so we can't really go to God's party today. And then there's a couple, you know, they have a newborn. and They can't, they can't go to church anymore. They got a newborn. Like, and God says that, that, I'm not saying this, God says in Luke 14, that is very infuriating to me. I am passionately invested in, in your life and I want you to reciprocate that. I want you not just to begrudgingly attend my party. I want you to do it as the joy set before you. And I'll, I will settle for nothing less, right? And so he sends his servants out into like the homeless communities, right? You drive around Charlotte, like the tent villages. He sends them out into the highways and byways. And literally, it's like people living on the side of the road. And he says, these people now become the guests of honor at my party because they need me. And apparently y'all's lives are so full of consumer products and, and work endeavors and, and, you know, good things in life, but you've made them God things. And they're detracting and they're distracting from the main thing. So the question is, is Jesus your first love? Is the priority on, on Jesus? Is your most loyal and addictive behavior aligned with Jesus? Because here's the thing, your most, your most loyal and addictive behavior will follow your first love. 
Jesus confronts us, the church, in Revelation chapter 2. He says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you have at, had at first. You know, for those of you who, who were coming out of some kind of non-Christian background, non-church background, you had this moment probably where you first encountered Jesus and, you know, you were on fire for Jesus. Like you couldn't get enough of Jesus and you were just voraciously reading the gospels and wanted more of Jesus. And then it kind of died off, right? And in, and in one sense, it's, it's going to kind of reach a, a place of routine. But, but Jesus says you need to tap into that, that first love ethos again. You need to repent of, of all these ways you're distracted and preoccupied with things more than, than me. I, I need to be your preoccupation. So repent, because you, you've fallen away. Repent and, and reclaim that first love. What does that practically look like? It, it doesn't mean you stop doing all these other things in life. You've you got a lot of other things you've got to keep doing. What, what having Jesus as your first love means is that you include him in everything you do, and you recognize him as the authority of everything you do. These, these are very important, okay? This is a two-sided coin. On the one hand, everything you do, everything, there is nothing off limits. Jesus is involved. He's, he's with you. Apart from him, you can do nothing. But you're not just inviting him in to kind of sit and watch you. You're appealing to him as the authority of that thing. So if, you're, if your marriage is, is where you got to spend some time, Right? Like one of those people invited to God's party said, Well, I'm a newlywed, I don't have time. God would say, I'm the inventor of your marriage. I'm the author of marriage. I am the authority of marriage. So not only should you bring your spouse to my party, but you need to sit at my feet and listen to what I have to say about marriage, right? In our culture, identity is a big thing. We're all navigating, exploring questions of identity. And how can I be happy? God invented identity and happiness. So involve him in the conversation. You're having conversations about this. It's not just the world at large. We're all asking these kinds of questions. And so you say, God, I need you to, to speak to this, and I need to bow the knee to what you authoritatively say about this. That's what God wants. And God is very passionate about this. And we see some of that passion uh, come to the surface in this passage. Deborah's response to Barak is in verse 9. She, she says, okay, I, I'll go with you. Surely I'll go with you, but you have forfeit the glory that comes with wholeheartedly trusting in God. And the Lord is going to put a big accent on this. He's going to give that glory that would have belonged to you, Barak, and he's going to give it to a woman. That's what she says. And, and Deborah is shaming him. She is shaming Barak here in a really edifying way. That's what she's doing. She's saying, you need to be a man. You need to step up and you need to, to, to take the responsibility and the role that God has set before you. And you're, you're at best being timid about that. And that's not good enough. Let's think of it like this. The honor of walking daughters down the aisle during a wedding. Who, whose honor is that? It's the dad's. It's, it's a father's honor to walk his daughters down the aisle on their wedding day. Now, Let's say the dad says, I, I just don't want to stand up in front of people. I'm nervous. To, I'm scared to do that. I kind of have a limp and that's embarrassing. For whatever reason, he says, I'm not going to do it. And, you know, mom has to sub. If I'm talking to a, a, a mom of, of a daughter getting married, I'm going to say, look, it's not, it's not exactly shameful for you to walk your daughter down the aisle. But let's be, let's be clear. The honor rightly belongs to the father. 
And so we're going to see next week that there's this character, Jael. She's, she's married to Heber, the Kenite. He's a descendant of Moses' father-in-law, Hobab. This guy goes by like three different names in Scripture. You've probably heard of him as Jethro or Ruel. Well, one of his names is Hobab. This happens a lot in the Bible. People have a lot of names. And uh, Jael, I would say, she is a, a picture of good infection. She has been... She has been appropriately impacted by God, and she's, she's willing to do whatever God tells her to do. And, and so God is giving her the honor. She should not feel shame over what she's going to do to Sisera in the next section of this story. But Barak should. He should feel ashamed of himself for being so spineless and cowardly here. And, and I don't mean he should wallow in his shame. He should feel this sort of piercing conviction and then he should decide to repent and, and step up and, and live his life in the way of Christ. So we're going to get to the details of, of Jael's story next week. And, and we're going to see how she has been infected in a good way by God. But this week's story is about the good infection that, that is happening in Deborah's life. And this is our last point. We see that Deborah is a character of edification and passion. She, she is a, a deeply edifying person to be around. Even when she's piercingly, uh, you know, rebuking you, that, that's good. That's, that's producing something constructive and edifying. And she's also zealous or passionate. The name Deborah, you know what it means? Uh, it means bee. Bee, like, like a honeybee. I did a little bit of research. A lot of you know more about bees than I do. And I've, I've just skimmed the surface, right? Google research, you know, for like 30 minutes this past week. But here's what I found. Bees, I did not know this. Maybe, maybe you all know this. Bees help produce one-third of the food supply for human beings. They help provide half the wor world's fibers and oils, and they prevent, help prevent soil erosion. Be bees are very, very edifying creatures. We, we, we get our food. We, you know, bees pollinate plants. Like, this is very critical. This is very life-giving. So, so that's Deborah. She, her name means this, and she's living into her name. She's a very edifying woman. Very good judge, very good prophetess of Israel. Her husband, his name's Lapidoth. You know what Lapidoth means? It means fire, torches, right? This picture of zeal. So you take, you take these names, right? Deborah and her husband, her head, and you say, okay, what is, what is God ultimately preaching to us? What's he telling us? Just like is true throughout the Bible, he's telling us, look forward to the fulfillment of these characters. Look, look to that day where the Christ will come and he will fully embody all of these positive motifs and themes that I've been developing throughout the biblical story. So just like Jesus, one of the big dimensions of, of the Christ, the character of Jesus, is that he is joyfully submissive. She, she is listed under the headship of her husband. We only get this with, with women in the, pro, in the Gospels or in the Bible. You see this? Like, we don't know Ehud's wife's name. And, and that'd be cool if we did, but we don't. But when it talks about Jael and Deborah, it says God has designed women to be under the head of men. So she's got this husband, Lapidoth. You're given the name of her husband. Uh, Jael's husband, his name is Heber. And, and that's not a bad thing. We tend to think of submission. Ugh, I wish it didn't have to be that way, but... I guess it kind of does. That's not how Jesus feels about submission. When, when you ask Jesus, how do you feel about submission, right? Like doing the will of your father. He says, oh, that's like nachos to me. That's what it says in the Bible. So it says in John 4, it's my food 
to do the will of the Father. So if you offered Tai Tai nachos, Tai Tai excited. I'm not like, why are you making me eat these nachos? I'm going yeah, to look for the nachos that are stuck to like six other nachos. And I'm like Jack Black, that counts as one nacho. Because I want to eat these things, right? And that's what Jesus says about submitting to the will of his Father. And so we're seeing a picture of that here. Deborah, she joyfully wants to carry out the zeal, right? The lapidoth, the, the fiery passion of, of, this, of this mission that she's been called to participate in. And just like Jesus, Deborah is clearly judging in locations and in ways that we would not necessarily anticipate. We see that in verse 5. Deborah... Where is she? Where is she based? I mean, she's the judge. She's the prophetess. So she's probably at the tabernacle. She's probably in like one of the major cities, right? I mean, she's probably in, a, in a, like a hustling, bustling, frenzied, frenzied like courtroom or city environment. No, she's out hanging out under a palm tree. She, in fact, she's there so often they've named the tree after her. This, she's out in the wilderness. She's in between two towns. Maybe that's because, you know, she's got a lot of people coming to see her, you know, trying to settle their disputes. And so this is a convenient place between the two towns. But, but it's out in the hill country. And the people of Israel come to her for judgment, out away from like a capital city or, or the tabernacle complex, away from, the, you know, the commerce and the commotion of a city. Uh, She's not settling these disputes in a courtroom or in a conference room. She's sitting under a tree out in the boondocks. And again, this is a picture of Jesus. There's just no getting around this. When, When you read the Gospels, Jesus is by and large conducting most of his kingdom work out away from like the frenzied, you know, city environments, away from commerce, away from commotion, mostly away from the temple complex. He does visit... Right? He visits cities, he goes into the temple complex, but typically he's doing that sort of covertly. God's, God's desire to have your full wholehearted attention is actually most compatible with you going out to him. Right? This is what it says in Hebrews, in thir- Hebrews 13. Ultimately, we go to Jesus outside the city because this is where he's bearing the, the scorn and the shame of, of, of the wretchedness that belongs to us so that he can fully atone for our sins. This is where he's perfectly satisfying and completing the, the redemptive plan of God. And, and, and God says, these go hand in hand. Like, this is where Jesus operates. And if you want Jesus in your life, if you want to get the good infection, you got to go where Jesus is. But it's also very practically where, where you are not being nearly as distracted by all of the consumeristic, materialistic, frenzied stuff that distracts you from, from the heart of God, which is that, that he would have your full attention, right? I mean, we're going to have to, to live in, in distracting situations, but that's different than us like adding on to the distractions deliberately, Right? And a lot of us are kind of like alcoholics. Like we know we can't handle it. At a certain point, we know that, that if this distraction's in my life, I cannot partake of it in a moderate way. And so God is always talking to us about this and, and putting himself in positions where, where we'd have to kind of break away from those distractions. I mean, Jesus is in the wilderness a lot. Jesus' forerunner John camped out in the wilderness. This theme of wilderness is all throughout the Old Testament. Jesus' warnings fit this theme. Jesus warned us that, look, if you pursue money, that's going to be a big problem for you. Like money and material things aren't bad in and of themselves, but it's hard for you 
when you accrue and hoard and add more and more stuff. You know this parable Jesus tells about the bigger barns guy, right? He has this bumper crop and he thinks, you know, I, I really need to like hoard all of this stuff. And, and Jesus says, look, what, what use is it if you gain the world, if you get all of your flesh's desires and in the meantime, you're forfeiting your soul. And again, the big focus is this culminating work of Jesus. Let us go to Jesus so we can be impacted by him, but where are we going? We're going outside the camp. Because here, Hebrews 13 tells us, we have no lasting city. We seek a city that is to come. So to catch the good infection, right? To be really molded and influenced and shaped by Jesus in a holistic way, we got to go get near Jesus. And only by going near him can we get that good infection. And if we get that good infection, here's what's going to happen. We're going to do things in life that are consistent with having been impacted by Jesus, which really in many instances means we're going to do uncomfortable and or risky things. And that's what Deborah is challenging Barak to do here. Verse 14, she says, Barak, it's telling that she has to coach him here, right? She's out there with him, but when it's time for him to attack, she has to say, okay, wake up, get up, up, exclamation point. This is the day for the war with Sisera. And she reminds him, look, you can be confident, not because you're self-sufficient, but because the Lord is fighting for you. He's going with you. I want to just sort of get you thinking as we conclude the sermon here about the daunting stuff of discipleship. And hopefully it's delightful stuff. It's the joy set before you, but let's be honest, it is, it's daunting and it's costly. So a couple of weeks ago, our, our Presbytery meets once a quarter, and the guy who preached at Presbytery, his name's Jordan Olszewski, he told us the story about how he was on vacation at this Baptist church, and he said it was kind of your typical Baptist sermon, right? Like, I don't know if there was an altar call, but it's, it's like, we need to share the gospel. We need to be really bold about this. And he was convicted. And so he went home, and he prayed, you know, God, give me an opportunity to share the gospel. And I think he was, he was literally sitting, you know, having his quiet time, praying that prayer, and he hears a knock on the door, and it's a Jehovah's Witness. And, and, and you know, he used to think, okay, that, I can just kind of dismiss that. That's not, that's not an opportunity. But he felt like this is the answer to the prayer. So now I'm going to have to talk to this guy about who Jesus really is. And I have to invite him for lunch, and we're going to have to have these awkward conversations because I, I can already kind of sense where, where he wants to go with this, and, and I have to like enter into this and, and try to witness to him about who Jesus is. And it didn't stop there. Like, this is his big thing now. He's, he's preaching to our presbytery, telling us, you know, all these pastors and ruling elders, he's saying, you guys are lazy when it comes to evangelism. He's trying to rock the boat. He's trying to appropriately disrupt us and say, we are too cozy. We are too comfortable. We need to be way more zealous to go tell people about Jesus. So let's get fired up about that. Uh, at that same Presbytery meeting, there was this guy named Jay that the, the missions committee had us listen to. And, and Jay said, you know, a lot of y'all, especially us here in East Charlotte, live near Muslim communities. And so that means on Fridays, you have to do this uncomfortable thing. Jay said, you, you're going to have to go to their prayer time and, and you're going to have to just sit and, and sort of observe and then, and then interact with people. And, and get to know some of these Muslims because they're all over in your community. This is an evangelistic missions opportunity. And that's going to be really uncomfortable for some of us, right? We think, I, I don't want to go sit into, in this room where they're praying to Allah and they're saying things in Arabic. I just, it, it's awkward. It's uncomfortable for me. 
And Jesus is saying, it's there. I need laborers for the harvest. I need you to go enter into that world so that you can be a light for Jesus. You guys know Travis and Jessica Jones. They've had this impact on people. They have this reputation of inviting people to live in what I'll call immigrant refugee apartment complexes. These these apartment complexes, uh, they're not the nicest, most bougie of apartment complexes. But there's a lot of amazing... Uh, you know, refugees and immigrants, you know, the kinds of people that the Bible puts the emphasis on all throughout scripture, sojourners, widows, orphans, like the least of these socioeconomically, least of these types of people. And you can go like live amongst them. There are apartments for you to rent. You're looking for a place to live. You can actually go live amongst them. And they've, they've very sincerely encouraged people to do that. Right? We've, we've had people in this church adopt. You know, one of our ruling elders served on an adoption board for an agency. And, and, and no joke, he, he, he has told people, he has a track record of telling people, hey, you should adopt. Which in one sense, because kids are hard, it's like, let's deliberately make life more messy, more complicated, and harder. Right? I've, I have a friend who he had, I think they had four or five kids. Uh, and he says, you know, this is how he pitches it. He said, you know, we had four kids. And my wife and I, we hit this spot, and it was, it was kind of predictable. It was steady. And, and honestly, like, we really put a high premium on comfort and predictability and, and easiness. And so we decided to adopt. And they just deliberately made life harder, right? It just, it was, it was a risk. It was uncomfortable. Uh, I mentioned this earlier in the missions moments. Some of you really do need to go over to Thailand. And you need to think about, well, are we, I mean, Luke and Denise moved over there, and they're from here. So may, there's, there's a path, right? And maybe that's something you're supposed to think about. You're supposed to try something, you know, because Jesus says it's good, not knowing how it's going to work out, right? I was, I was having lunch with a buddy a couple weeks ago, and he was telling me about the challenges of his marriage. And, and I'd say he was complaining a little bit. I mean, he was definitely venting. And um, I could very confidently say, okay, so here's your response. At least I know with, with total conviction and, and assurance that this is a primary way you need to respond to this difficult season of your marriage. Uh, you need to be really humble. You need, to, you need to slow down. You need to be patient, and you need to be kind, and you need to be the chief repenter. And I, I could see, at least in his countenance, this is not what he wanted to hear. But that's what Jesus wants. It is uncomfortable. And, and frankly, it feels risky because if I lead in repentance, then, then they're going to use that and leverage that against me. Right? Let, the, let them say they're sorry first. I, sh- I shouldn't be the one to lead in this way. It feels risky. It feels weak. And God says, this is how it works. You follow me even if it doesn't make sense, even if you don't know how it's going to work out. And that's the story here, y'all. That's the story. God is saying through the prophetess Deborah, specifically to the character Barak, and we can all identify with Barak because we like things comfortable and predictable and cozy. God's saying, you need to get up. That's what she says, up. Don't you see that the Lord is with you? So, So let's go. Like embrace life with Jesus, the good infection. Let that, let that get into your soul and let it guide everything about the way you live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these stories as, as I reflect on this, this dynamic woman in Scripture, I think of characters like Esther. We did a sermon series on Esther not too long ago. And the risks that she took, not knowing would the king raise the scepter, would, would, would she be alive at the end of that meeting? You, you show us these pictures so frequently. 
Uh, the hall of faith, Hebrews 11, you show us pictures of what it really tangibly looks like to follow Jesus. And uh, of course, there will be ordinary ways that you, obviously, you, you will guide us through all kinds of normal, sort of mundane, ordinary times. And, and then there's going to be more extraordinary moments where it's going to feel really unknown to us. And uh, I imagine that's how Barak felt in this, in this moment of redemptive history. And yet, um, I thank you for the prophetess, Deborah, for, for the way you used her in his life. And I, and I pray for all of us that that kind of zeal, that kind of uh, submission to the Lord w- would be infectious to us, that, that it would get in us and that we would see uh, this, this personal, uh, intimate passion being cultivated in each and every one of our hearts uh, to, follow, to follow our Lord who served us and, and gave his life for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.